It was still the first day of the week that evening, while the, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, are, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Can you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these words. Um, we ask that you help us receive them even as we receive the gift of your spirit. Um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, we're entering this season of Pentecost in ordinary time. So today marks that feast. We spoke a little bit about it earlier in uh, a primer to catch you guys up if, if, you're, if you feel uninitiated or unprepared. Pentecost just means 50. Uh, and, and it's a feast found in the Hebrew scriptures and it's a harvest holiday. Uh, praising God for the first fruits of the season, uh, roughly 50 days after uh, Passover. So it's not unimportant then that this image, this feast of Pentecost, this harvest holiday, kind of gathers up all that Old Testament uh, imagery and meaning, and then it's kind of spun into a new resonance and meaning, meaning in the New Testament following the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a new Passover that brings about release and deliverance by the hand of God, not just for the Israelites from, the slavery, from slavery under Pharaoh and his regime in Egypt, but for the whole of creation from the brutal slavery under sin and death. This is a harvest festival that becomes a sign of the first fruits of a new creation. The pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, the grafting into God's family by this Spirit who makes us daughters and sons like and with the Son, Jesus. And it grants us God's presence and calls us into God's mission with this Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the work of ordinary time for us which follows Pentecost. It's this long season. We have next door this uh, beautiful quilt that several people made for our godly play that kind of narrates the time of the church year. And uh, almost half of it is just green, and that's ordinary time. It's this long season of growing, uh, growing into who we really are and who we're becoming in Christ. This is like the summer growth season where these perennial fruits of the Spirit come back. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So we're entering through Pentecost into this ordinary time. Uh, I invite you guys to join me. And, and we'll continue to talk about the Spirit through this time. Because um, when you're talking about growth and you're talking about the fruits of the Spirit, it's probably good, even as the Spirit tends to be shy and fade into the background and illuminate us and show us the Father and the Son, um, having a better idea of what the Spirit has been doing and what the Spirit is up to now uh, will help us in our growth.
you'll see our, our altar cloth will change and it'll turn into this onion skin dyed uh, altar cloth with all these green threads that are kind of jagged and uh, many of us have participated in the making of that. So hopefully like Titus next week, you'll show up and be like, are, are we an ordinary time? <laughs> right? So a reading from John 20 reminded me uh, a little bit um, about this time last year. I've tried to delete Facebook several times at this point. I can really, I can quit at any time. <laughs> but right when I have my finger on the deactivate button, the algorithm, and I think the algorithm is like tech, technology's version of the Holy Spirit, right? This algorithm, like, inter <laughs> we can edit that out. <laughs> this algorithm interrupts that process with like a really important or touching direct message from someone I haven't heard from in many, many years, or someone I don't know, or someone who would have no other way of, of contacting me. Or um, this algorithm puts these uh, images in front of me from last year, or seven years ago when we told Nan that she was gonna be a grandma for the first time, or 12, 12, 12 years ago, when we got married, 11 years ago? Well, 11 years ago. Yeah. Recent anniversary, guys. Um, and it puts these memory posts, and it plunges me into this, like, nostalgia and distraction, and my original intent to cut the cord is just over. Like, it's too valuable of a tool to get rid of, right? This week was no different when a photo came across my feed of last year at this time. And this, of course, is when we had these big plans to celebrate Pentecost with our authentically Pentecostal friends from Canoe, uh, who normally meet after us. We're going to sing with them a little in English and a little in Spanish, share these amazing gifts of the Spirit um, that call each of, our, each of our congregations in our own ways to experience and express Christ's presence and to extend that presence into the neighborhood. And I showed up early, like I always do, and I was so excited. There were a lot of moving parts. And then when I drove up, the whole intersection out here at the five points or in front of the bakery, all the way up to the YMCA, where police taped off, and there were several squad cars, and there was a crime scene investigator picking up shell casings of a, a drive-by shooting that had occurred uh, the, the previous early morning. Needless to say, this is no way to start a special day of worship that you're kind of a little anxious about connecting all the dots and including everyone. <laughs> there, like, we couldn't even get into the building. There, were, there was no access to Bivens. It was all taped off and we couldn't walk through uh, an investigated crime scene. So we um, did a lot of hand-wringing and looking at each other and wondering who's going to make the call on this and what do we do? We, under the leadership of this Holy Spirit that we were supposed to be celebrating and participating in, decided to take our worship outside, to the garden. So we pulled out the communion table, this communion table. It looked something like this, um, if you can see that. Uh, you probably can't see it too well. You can see the crime tape behind on the top kind of horizon. We pulled out the communion table and we put it in the garden. We, we pulled out some of the potluck tables and some chairs and put them out there too. We went unplugged, which was fine. 
But unplugged also means you don't have a projector, and this is like the one day of the year that we needed a projector <laughs> because of how bilingual challenged we all are, um, but especially us. <laughs> and I threw out my sermon notes because that just seemed like something we should do too. And we ad-libbed the, the liturgy. So these are all things like I'm kind of cringing telling you about it because I don't think I'm a control freak, but I'm one who carefully like cares about crafting a liturgy and and sharing with others this formative work of the people each week. But, and I think sometimes the Spirit enables us to bring to life the, the hard work and the prayer and the preparation and all the thought that goes into our planning. This is with church and with life. The Spirit brings to life our hard work. But sometimes the Spirit just plain interrupts. <laughs> and boy, most of the time, I really hate to be our passage from John's Gospel comes from this crazy chapter 20, full of these interruptions. It reports on the events following Jesus' resurrection. It reports that while it's early, still dark on the first day of the week, that Mary stumbles upon the unrecognizable risen Jesus. Go back and read it. She pegs him as like one of those graveyard gardeners who is charged with just keeping the gravesites tidy and respecting the rest of the dead. Then her weeping turns out, turns into excitement as she tries to get her hands and her mind around what her eyes have just beheld as she recognizes Jesus, as Jesus makes himself recognizable to her by speaking peace. She runs to the disciples and starts reporting on this sacred foolishness that God is now in the business of raising dead people. Because Jesus is alive. This is the crude and strange gospel message that Mary first preached, that people like me and some of the others that get up here regularly and preach, this is, this is what we're trying to do on a Sunday by Sunday basis, is get up and again and again talk about this so that we actually believe it, that God is in the business of raising dead people because Jesus is alive. Baseline. Stop. Here. So we get to our passage following that. And John painstakingly reports still that this happens on the first day of the week. This, as we just learned, is the first day of the new creation. Much like the original creation, but better. Form brought into chaos, joy from fear. The Spirit gracefully hovers over the waters looking to bring about life and birth and fruit and harvest. As the aftermath of the flood, when God, through death, brought about great renewal and new life. A dove was sent as an envoy, bringing peace and new life. Jesus meets his disciples who are rightfully fearful. They're gathered behind a dead, bolted door, and they're probably waiting for this whole revolution gone bad thing to blow over, and instead Jesus interrupts. He stands right in their midst and speaks, Peace be with you. Just Days prior, he stood before them, previewing his death and the spirit he'd give them in his stead. And he says, this is John 14, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. When Jesus shows up, he, the Prince of Peace, brings peace, turning death to life, fear to joy. He's like the, the speaker, the embodiment, the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Having tasted death and been raised by God's spirit and vindicated as God's son, he sits at the Father's right hand. Psalm 16 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you did not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And he's brought us into that place with God. After he said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And when the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. But this peace doesn't come in some, like, ghostly, ethereal package. It comes in the scarred body of Jesus. This is always the route to peace. Sacrifice. Sacrifice, the, the intersection of skin and bone and spirit, participating in God's new creation and bearing scars before we bear fruit. But also having those scars kind of reconfigured or, or like transfigured into marks not of abandonment or forsakenness or unpeace, but of resilience and peace and vindication. Jesus shows them his hands and his side. That Jesus can show them his scars is a powerful statement that death is so real, <laughs> that pain is so real, that sin is so real, but that this new life that God is working is even more real. It's this resurrection reality now that all these lesser things must fit inside of and be defined by. It's this resurrection of woman that can interrupt their fear in their isolation, they're behind closed doors, and then turn it into joy at the sight of a scarred but risen Lord. Our text says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. It's out of this peace, then, that they are, that we are given work to do. Maybe it's more accurate to say that they and, and us, if we're following Jesus, are given a purpose for the rest of our lives, a calling. We're, we're sent. It's almost, maybe, maybe this would be a, a decent analogy for, for this credit. It's almost equivalent to like a graduation for them, for these disciples. Sure, like Jesus was the one who did all the work and passed all the tests, and they kind of failed a lot. Um, but I, I, I don't rag on them for that. Like they're seeing things and involved in things that have never happened, and, and God is reconfiguring and changing and transforming their imaginations for how the world is going to work. But the apprenticeship has concluded in a way. They've been given their degrees in like divinity and medicine and criminal justice and agriculture and social work, and it seems that Judas like dropped out one semester early of finance, right? And now they're to use what they've been taught, 
and shown and called into. Because it does no good to merely be, now you have to also go. You gotta get a job. <laughs> Even as you continue to abide in me, I am sending you. The same as the Father sent me. I'm sending you with a traveling companion. This, this is what it means to be part of the mission of a missional God, a God that is always going, that is always sending, that is always on the move. One of the commentators that I really like in this passage, uh, Dale Bruner, says the convex, like the outward tilt of all this concave resurrection mission, or resurrection is mission. The convex of the concave resurrection is mission. The two have to happen almost exactly together on the same day because a great miracle requires this great mission immediately, urgently. The resurrection then turns to ascending. I remember reading a really good book in seminary by a guy named Bob Eckblad called Reading the Bible with the Damned. It's really remarkable that he describes in this ministry of discipleship to folks who are imprisoned, in gangs, who have survived abuse, poor, the immigrant, he finds the most resonant good news, the way to tell the gospel and to teach the gospel and to encourage them to share the gospel for these folks who have been left out or, or marginalized or given up on or forgotten. It's not just that the good news are sins forgiven or that there's new life in Christ. Those are powerful callings and truths and metaphors. But for these people, it's that there is something to do, something to be called into, something to participate in with God and others. That you're not just healed, but you have a role in bringing about healing in others. He says that Jesus offers a way of liberation through liberation, healing, and through total transformation and empowerment of the least. This is the very best news to today's damn who long for a meaningful vocation. And this is exactly what Jesus is giving them, and Jesus is giving us a meaningful vocation that's gonna take the rest of our lives to fulfill in small doses on a daily basis. So this is a gift that we're given along with the Spirit. It's a calling to join God in healing this world. That's it, right? <laughs> Um, this takes so many forms that I, I hesitate to even like, start a list for this. Because I think each of these callings is so customized to each and every one of our specific experiences and personalities and locations and web of relationships and strengths and weaknesses and giftings. Ask yourself this week, where you're being sent as the Father sent Jesus into places of deep pain and suffering with the Spirit's presence and your own scars to show, as you bear witness to Jesus' power to heal, liberate, and transform. And I doubt it's going to be many miles from where you already are. Like, Jesus is calling and sending you right where you are because there's work to be done in joining God in renewal. I think this will look different for, for someone like with kids than it will for someone who's single. This will look different for each and every one of our very contexts that we're really embedded in and that we know. Maybe there will also be some overlap, so there will be some similarities, and you can partner with someone in this. You know, some overlap across neighborhoods, or friend groups, or coworkers, or enemies, or casual acquaintances. 
I think this also looked different for someone in their 60s and someone in their 30s or someone in their 20s or someone in their who's like six years old. Like, but I think there's work for all of us to do, and it's costly, but it's invigorating this calling. I'm sending you as the Father sent me. So all of our varied callings, though, they're going to look different, they're going to act different, they're going to have different timetables and maybe even different um, levels of effectiveness or like obviousness in how God is healing. But I think one thing is in common to all these different callings and, and ways that God is sending us. And I think that common thing, that common note uh, that connects them all is this hard, long, and sustained work of offering and bringing about forgiveness. I struggled this week reading this passage because it's very short, very exciting, and relatively easy. It's even like easy to translate, um, which is not always the case. But then it feels like such a non sequitur at the end when Jesus starts talking about forgiveness. He says, I'm sending you the Spirit. I'm, we're going. We're on the move. Forgive others. And whatever you forgive will be forgiven. And whatever forgiveness you withhold will be withheld. What is that? <laughs> right? But I think it's this, it's this hard, long, sustained work of offering and bringing about forgiveness that we desperately need this gift of the Spirit in. Anyone that's ever had to forgive someone knows that we need the Spirit to bring this about in and through us. Our text says, Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes forgiveness into them. His, his life work into them. Man, that is so trusting. <laughs> that he hand over the most difficult, humbling, important work to stubborn people like you and I who withhold forgiveness like for petty things. Even though we've been given more grace than we can imagine. That he trusts us with the ministry of untangling our relationships in the string of brokenness that we leave in the wake of, of ourselves and others by starting the process somewhere. Just anywhere. That he gives us the gift of the Spirit and I think, I think the comfort, the advocate, the, the companion of the Holy Spirit helps us to give others the gift of going first in this. We open ourselves out to God's restoring work. I think this, again, happens by interrupting. We are interrupted, and we, we can also, by our asking for forgiveness, interrupt cycles of unforgiveness with the fresh breath that forms like really easy, childish syllables that even my kids can say. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I love you. Forgive me. I think that's what this breath that Jesus is breathing into them is helping them and us say. This seems so small and so ineffective in the grand scheme of what is wrong with ourselves in this world, right? Forgiveness. We're unsure if it'll even work in our own lives and relationships, let alone if it can scale. We're always looking to see if this can scale bigger in, in a way that can help our ever-polarized and ideological society. But any true effort towards forgiveness is an effort of hospitality towards the Spirit. And by that I mean of making room for the Spirit. The Spirit has a habit 
of inhabiting these little creases that we make and making them more spacious and giving room for God to do the mending, of pumping more air into the room and breathing more life as God does resuscitating of things that were dead. South African Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, wrote a memoir called No Future Without Forgiveness. And if, if anyone's ever read that, it's about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa that tried to pick up the pieces after apartheid and with a process of restorative justice. And when you read it, you're, it's, it's absurd. And like it, it's, it's crazy. But it, to some extent, worked. And it is still in the works. And he tells of this hearing related to this massacre that happened in this place called uh, Bishu. Uh, um, and it was like a 1992 political protest and like 30 people got mowed down by this mostly white militarized CDF uh, soldier force. We can't imagine that that would happen anywhere in the world, can we? And so following this, they're, they had this process of asking and receiving for forgiveness. And so they had these CDF soldiers who did the killing, um, which included one of their own soldiers that was shot by, by their own. That's normally how violence also works. Um, but there's, there's standing these soldiers in the middle of this tense room filled with many of the neighbors and colleagues and family members of these slain demonstrators. And this white officer, uh, Colonel uh, Schobsberger, starts to speak and cuts the tension with this extraordinary appeal. And all he says is, I say we are sorry. I say the burden of the Bishu massacre will be on our shoulders for the rest of our lives. We cannot wish it away. It happened. But please, I ask specifically the victims not to forget. I cannot ask this. But I ask to forgive us, to get the soldiers back into the community, to accept them fully, to try to understand also the pressure that they were under them. This is all I can do. I'm sorry. I can't. This is all I can say. I'm sorry. And then Tutu goes on to write that that crowd, which had been so close to lynching them, did something quite unexpected when they broke out into a thunderous applause. Unbelievable. The mood change was startling. The colonel's colleagues joined him in apologizing, and when the applause died down, Bishop Tutu says, can we just have a moment of silence, please, because we're dealing with things that are very, very deep. And it's not easy, as we all know, to ask forgiveness. It's also not easy to forgive. But we are people that know when someone cannot be forgiven, there is no future. If a husband and wife quarrel on one of them doesn't say, I'm sorry, and the other one doesn't say, I forgive. The relationship is in jeopardy. There's no future without forgiveness. So you can truly see how that day in that South African community represented the first day of a new week, the first day of a new creation. It was a future made by forgiveness. So on this first day, of creation for us, we along with those who meet Jesus, who have met Jesus, have been met by Jesus, we too can have our fear turn into joy. 
We too can have our minds changed about the way things end because death is now a comma, not a full stop. And we're called into this reality even as we're joined with Christ. In his resurrection, we're joined with Christ's mission. We're sent. But we're not sent alone. We're breathed into. We're given the gift of Christ's own spirit to be our friend and our guide, our companion, Christ's power, Christ's promise, Christ's presence. And like any good gift worth receiving, this kind spirit is a gift worth using and sharing. We're called to participate in that mission as little Christ, as forgivers. As a priesthood of believers with keys to the kingdom and, and we're to offer and steward forgiveness in our own lives and those around us as like people from the future and as a future made by forgiveness. Can you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this extraordinary word. Uh, by your spirit, work that word into us and give us confidence and peace that we might be uh, forgiven people quick to listen, slow to speak, and uh, quick to offer and accept uh, forgiveness. We thank you that you've, you've called us. You've given us so much work to do for the rest of our lives in small places that we're already engaged in. We don't have to go anywhere. Uh, we just have to open ourselves up to your spirit who will open us out to your work in this world. God, we thank you so much um, for this resurrected Jesus who continues to inter interrupt us, interrupt this world, and to bring about new life. We pray all this in Jesus' name.